We are two weeks out from Easter, which means we have two more weeks of Lent, this uh, 46-day period of preparation and reflection leading up to Easter. And that also means we have two weeks left of this series that we've been in called Polarized, What Pushes Us Apart and Can Bring Us Together. Uh, There are so many different ways in which we as people... uh, just we as people, Uh, but we as people in this country, in this world, are are pushed apart by our differing identities and our differing beliefs and our differing differing values, and we've been taking on some of those heavy things over the last several weeks, so we've talked about uh, religious identities, ethnic identities, we've talked about differences in motivating vision even, and you know, two weeks out from this, we thought we should probably tone it down a little bit, make it a little bit easier so today we're just talking about political identities (laughs) just nice and easy just coasting into easter right um i'm sure that every one of you has had some sort of either personal experience of or observation of a political identity and the church and by church i mean the big c church like the global church made up of a billion people across different denominations over the last two thousand years And um, I've had two different main ones, or I had two different main ones as I was growing up. And no pun intended, they were like polar opposites. So when, I said no pun intended. Um, So the the first one, which I grew up with, um, I grew up in a a very conservative tradition, and that conservative was both theological and political. And... um, if, if you have like an image in your mind, you might think of a cross draped in a flag. Um, in, our, in our worship center growing up, we had flags at the front of the worship center. We had one American flag on one side of the stage and one uh, Christian flag on the other side of the stage. Are you familiar with the Christian flag? Um, as, as little kids during vacation Bible school, which is like that one week uh, camp that's put on every year by, by many churches. Uh, every morning at the beginning of Vacation Bible School, we would bring the flags up from the back, and we would pledge allegiance to the flags, to both of the flags, both to our country and to the Christian flag, but the country always went first, which is kind of telling. Um, but we never, like, we were told, you don't bring politics into church, Except when you do, because it aligns with the politics of the given party, which is closest to the, the uh, religious affiliation that we had. So there were certain things that were totally off, off topic. Like, you could not discuss these things, but there were plenty of other clearly political things which, which we talked about almost on a weekly basis. And it was implied, if not flat out said, politics were the, the way by which we accomplished God's desire for the world. Last week, we talked about the kingdom of God. Politics were the way of achieving the kingdom of God in the world, okay? So that was one experience. That was the one that I largely grew up in. Well, all the way to the other side of the spectrum was one that I got introduced to when I went off to college and was exposed to completely different worldviews. Ironically, it was when I went off to Bible school (laughs) where I started learning a little bit more about Jesus people's interpretation of of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Um, And and if you you think about this end of the spectrum, you might think of 
pacifism. Or you might think of simply uh, Jesus being not political. I became convinced, and, and like the tribe that I was a part of was convinced that Jesus was not political. He did not engage with the politics of the day. He tried to step out of all of that stuff. It's all about um, loving people, right? It's all about pacifism. And so every single interaction that there was, if you could choose the pacifist way, that is what you went with. You did not engage in politics. One of the, the practical things was that uh, we didn't vote because voting was putting your trust in the kingdoms of the world rather than the which is somewhere other than this. These are two very different things, right? And I was like shifting all the way from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum. Now, you can tell that I'm using all past tense, that uh, those are things that were in my past, and I have found this weird in-between that tries to kind of balance some of that, those electromagnetic forces which had pushed to the sides are now awkwardly in tension in the middle. And you might wonder how on earth I got there. Uh, I started to be raised in, the, in a church, and then I went off to Bible school. How did I end up in the middle in this awkward magnetic tension? Uh, I read more of Jesus' words. Imagine that. Um, as we were planning this series and we got to this Sunday when we were going to talk about political identity, it was one story in particular that I said, we absolutely have to cover this story from the life of Jesus. It's a little less known one, and it's kind of small, but the details are important. So here, here it is. Jesus is uh, he's, uh, continuing his work. He is on his way from his home in Galilee, which is in like northern Israel, and he's on his way down to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is uh, like the center of the political world at this time, and he has this fairly political message that he's talking about a kingdom of God, um, which, which might seem kind of bland or whatever. It might seem familiar to you, but it was a different kingdom from the kingdoms of the world, a different king than the current king, and you can imagine that not everybody appreciated talking about a different kingdom, especially, you know, the current king. So, as he's about to go into Jerusalem, talking about the, a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom, the current king gets wind of things and isn't really thrilled about what he's hearing. So, this is the story from Luke chapter 13 and uh, just a handful of verses. At that time, some Pharisees came up and said to Jesus, get away from here because Herod, that's King Herod, wants to kill you. But he said to them, go and tell that fox, look, I'm casting out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will complete my work. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the next day because it is impossible that a prophet should be killed outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would have none of it. Look, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So it starts off with this, this group called the Pharisees who come and warn Jesus. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were this group of religious people. Uh, you could maybe think of it as like a party of religious people uh, who shared a whole lot in common with Jesus, but also had a lot of differences 
with Jesus. They probably wouldn't have considered Jesus to be in their party. And yet they, are, uh, they have enough in common and enough not in common with King Herod that they can sense what's going on and they give Jesus a little bit of a warning. As opposed to the Pharisees uh, who were like against the Roman Empire, against the occupiers, they took the scriptures very seriously and, and living out the scriptures very seriously. There were a group of people who were collaborators. They, uh, they acknowledged that there were these ruling parties that were coming in. There was an empire, which was not Jewish. But you know what? If they aligned with the, the, the Roman Empire, maybe they could get something out of it personally. And of course, this included King Herod. King Herod was like a puppet king for uh, the Roman Empire. He was put in place to continue doing what the empire wanted him to be doing. Again, he's not very happy about somebody else coming in saying that he's a king and there's a different kind of kingdom. And the Pharisees have enough not in common with, with Herod and enough in common with Jesus that they give him a heads up that this is happening, that Herod is not happy. That maybe he should tone it down a little bit. So, of course, Jesus being Jesus, Jesus being not political, not polarizing, he says, oh my goodness, this is going to get me into trouble. I better shut up and go on my way. Uh, no, he does not do that. And uh, instead, what he does here is he says, you tell that fox. And then he starts quoting Tom Petty. No, I won't back down. I'll stand my ground all the way to the gates of hell, I will not back down, I'll stand my ground. Uh, this is one of those, those spots where it, it's important to remember or to learn for the first time that the Bible as we're reading it in English is not the Bible that was originally written down. This is an English translation. So 2,000 years ago when this was written down, it was not written down in English, it was written down in Greek, which was the language of the time. It was the language of the empire. And so there's certain things, certain phrases, certain images even that kind of get lost a little bit in translation from a, a different language halfway around the world 2,000 years ago. On top of that, there's actually a different layer because Jesus is speaking. And Jesus in his speaking right here, he is probably not speaking Greek. Greek was the written language. Greek was the language of the empire that everybody would have known, kind of like English now. You go to many countries and they kind of know English because it's like the most popular language. But there was a spoken language which was shared by the Jewish people. So Jesus, a Jew talking to other Jews, would probably not have been speaking in Greek. He would have been speaking in Aramaic, which is a, uh, a, Jewish, uh, a Jewish language that kind of is spoken around and, and spread at this time in the first century. Now, why does that matter? Because also gets lost in translation are some of those themes, some of those words, some of those idioms. So it goes from Aramaic to Greek and then 2,000 years later to English. So Jesus calls King Herod a fox. When we think of fox, we think of someone who's sly, someone who's uh, curious and like really good at tricking people. Immediately when I think of a fox, I think of uh, the, the end of the gingerbread man story where the gingerbread man comes alive and he escapes and he's running away from everybody. He tricks absolutely everybody except the fox. Uh, 
The fox knows what's going on. The fox is the only one who convinces the gingerbread man to slow down. And it is in convincing the gingerbread man to slow down that the fox is able to do his sly thing and eat the gingerbread man story over. That's maybe the picture that we get 2,000 years later, English language, when we think of a fox. In the first century, especially among Jewish people, this is not the picture that they had in mind when they thought of a fox. A fox in the first century was someone who didn't actually have any power of their own. Fox was not sly, a fox was not creative, was not cunning. A fox was a pretender. There's a lion who had lots of power to themselves, who could go out and hunt and kill things. Fox was the one who came around later and ate all the bones that were left over and thought they were something anyways. So when Jesus says, you go and tell this fox, and he's referring to Herod, he's saying, you go tell this guy who thinks that he has power and authority over me that he doesn't actually have any power and authority. Anything that he gets is from somebody else. He is not as great as he thinks he is, and if anybody needs to stop talking, it's him. Uh, there was one article that I read this week that tried to translate uh, the, the sentiment of what maybe the first century Jewish people may have meant when they used the word fox. So here's maybe some English words that we could put in instead of fox. I'm going to bring these up, Robin. What is needed is a colorful English term that can be used across wide audiences. That last requirement is difficult because words of scorn are often exclusively vulgar or restricted to rather small subsets of English speakers. Considering the follow list of possibilities for fox in its negative sense, Imagine Jesus calling Herod these things, okay? Weakling, small fry, usurper, poser, clown, insignificant person, cream puff, nobody, weasel, we've got kids in the room, but you can read that next word, tin soldier, peon, hick, pompous, pretender, jerk, upstart. And you can imagine, what, what I imagine is those Pharisees who are of a different political party than Jesus, perhaps. They hear him say these things about their shared enemy, Herod, and they're like, oh, he did not. And yet we are told and convinced time and time again that Jesus was not political and he was not polarizing. Um. This is where I think it's really important to distinguish between two terms that we really often use interchangeably but are very different. And I think noticing the difference really is important for us living in this polarized time. And that's the difference between partisan and political. We often just kind of put those two words together or use them interchangeably as if they're synonyms. But I think they're, they're really different. So partisan is like fully aligned with, fully polarized toward, fully calcified towards a single political party and everything that goes with it. And so something comes up, some issue comes up, some identity comes up, and you immediately know because of your partisan alignment that this is the corner that I am polarized to, right? 
This is where we engage in whataboutism. Yeah, but this. Well, this thing happened, but I'm on this side, so I'm going to remain in this corner. This is all about winning. It's all about victory at all costs, to remain uh, committed to that political party. See, I just included that that word in there. Uh, The other thing is political, though. Political is about power and how power is used and who has power and what that power does, what that power accomplishes, who that power is meant for, when that power is used and when that power is not used. Politics can be a really destructive thing, right? However, Power can also be used in really important and uh, justice-seeking ways, even. I might even argue, I'm going to argue right now, it is maybe politics that can bring us together when partisanship is something that pushes us apart. Now, I I do want to acknowledge, like, there are probably, there's maybe certainly different parties that you agree with a lot more things on. And so it is likely that you either lean or you find yourself in camp thoroughly with one party over another, whether it's politics or, or something else. And, and yet, if, if we're not just leaning into partisanship, but saying, how, how can we be political? How can we focus on power and power being used well? Then I actually think we have a lot that we can come together on. Um, I'm really big on studies. I like social sciences. I I like to to see how people act and how that plays out and how they respond to certain questions being asked of them. So a a couple studies uh, that were done in the last few years. It was in 2018, I believe, there's a study done by the Public Religion Research Institute and the Atlantic, where they were asking people of different political affiliations, so Republican or Democrat. They had to identify which party they most aligned with first. And then among lots of other questions, they asked, Who, what type of person would you least like your child to marry? Okay, this is just one of many questions, but if you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican, what type of person would you least like your child to marry? Republicans said a trans person, okay? You know who Democrats said? A Republican. (laughs) So staunchly against someone in the other party that among all of the other qualities that a person could have, they would not want their child to come home and say, I'm marrying a Republican. That's just one example from that whole study. That's a huge chasm between the two, right? Huge chasm. And yet what we see when we actually talk to people more fully and we look at other studies too, when we talk not about partisanship but about politics and policy and how power is worked for uh, individual people in the world, what we find is there's there's actually a pretty uh, observable bridge it might be a rickety bridge, 
It might feel a little tense to, to walk across, but there's often a bridge that can separate people because of politics when partisanship keeps them uh, on their different sides, okay? So a, a couple really quick examples. Lots of studies show that um, individual partisan people think that the people of the other party are way more uh, extreme than they actually are. On a number of different issues, they ask, uh, if it's a, a Democratic person, they would, they would be asked, who, uh, what do you think a Republican thinks of this issue? They will almost always say that they are way more extreme than the Republicans actually are, and then vice versa. We are not nearly as extreme as our partisan affiliations might suggest. So that's number one. But then the other thing is, when you break it down to individual issues, individual uh, uses of power, who it's for, how it's used, all of this stuff, that, that touches on everyday lives, there's a whole lot more that people across the, the partisan divide agree on. You want good things for your kids, right? You want to live in safety, right? You want to have some sort of freedom. You want people to know who you actually are and not make judgments about who you are because of what you look like or who you love. Yeah, right? You want to help to make this world be a better place for all of us? You want all of those things? So does the person of the other party. Now, I don't want to come off like this is all duckies and bunnies. <laughs> like, everything's fine. We just need to ignore all of the big stuff, right? We just need to agree to get along. Um, I imagine that some people from each of those sides, maybe those of you sitting in the room today, are, uh, are not fully on board with what I'm saying. However, one of the things about a bridge is it gets stepped on from both sides. Um, and, and what happens if we are willing to look at a bridge, no matter how rickety, no matter how unsecure, no matter how Indiana Jones looking it is, one of the things that that does is it shows that common experience that we truly do have, and it readjusts our attention not towards the people who are on the bridge, but the ones who made that rickety bridge in the first place and let it be dilapidated, like that fox Herod. If you're going to be mad at anybody, use that power, use that politics to do the just thing to not direct it towards the people that we share a whole lot in common with, but to use that energy, use that power to direct it towards the people and the powers that are actually impacting the bridge. So as we go into uh, these last two weeks of Easter, as we go out into this world of all sorts of partisanship and political disagreement, my prayer is that we can focus on that creaky bridge rather than the chasm that separates us. My prayer is that we can focus on the things that we can agree on, no matter how tenuous, in order to continue to grow goodness in our lives and in our world. May that be so.